0: Sally McManus calls for end to 30 year war against workers labour's federal icac is NAC, and queensland to end reliance on coal by 2035 this is the week on wednesday Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and joining me from the Harborside City is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, and and my co-host for Melbourne Fringe Week on Wednesday live on the 12th of October at 5.45 from Victorian Trades Hall Council is the great and the glorious Van Battam. How are you, Van?
1: Oh, you know, Ben, I think we both know I've had better weeks than this, but you put one foot in front of the other and you keep going.
0: Yes, indeed. That sort of sums up a lot of the last couple of years for us. I think it's just when you find yourself in a desert, you just got to keep walking.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the quote from Churchill. If you're going through hell, keep going.
0: That's right, don't stop.
1: So it's going to be a very optimistic full of sunshine week on Wednesday today,
0: isn't it Ben? Well, I'm going to start this episode, Van, with some really positive things that have happened because the last few days there's been lots of things going on, lots of things happening. You know, you and I talked a lot in the lead up to the federal election about some of the changes this country needed and the last few days we've seen some of them actually start to happen. We've seen a bill introduced into Parliament that will allow offshore wind, the infrastructure required to build offshore wind. Uh, We've seen the scrapping of the cashless debit card and actual social policy programs being put in place to replace that horrible, privatized, um, oppression, racist policy that existed previously. 10 days paid family and domestic violence leave is being legislated. I understand it will be law probably by the time people listen to this episode, uh, and that Labor has tried to adjust the law on pensions so retirees can do more part-time work if they want to and not lose their pensions or super rights. They've also passed the laws to create Jobs and Skills Australia to deal with the skill shortage that this country has been suffering under for the last decade, and of course, Bill Shorten, the Minister for the NDIS, has appointed Kurt Fernley,
1: Kurt Fernley,
0: champion Kurt Fernley, as chair of the National Disability Insurance Agency. And of course, Graham Innes uh, to uh, one of the board positions as well. These are all big steps in the right direction for Australia. Things that you and I have called for, the union movement has called for, um, advocates in disability sector and family violence in the environment movement uh, in skills and training and education have all wanted movement in these areas and here we are uh, finally seeing it It's starting to happen. It's uh, it is a good thing. It is a good thing to see.
1: Look, it's absolutely a good thing, and it's been fantastic to see a government that was only elected in May. So May, June, July, August, September. It's only been five months, and the pace of change has been extraordinary. People are comparing, and when I say people, I mean people who vote the way we do, are comparing it to the first hundred days of Whitlam in terms of these sort of seismic changes about the framework of our society and assumptions about the economy that Labor are leading. And they're, the interesting thing that's happening is that they're leading them without much opposition, even though the Liberals voted against the uh, climate action targets, they weren't able to sink them. We didn't have an explosion of anti-environment comment in the media. We didn't have, you know, pickets or um, (laughs) the usual suspects from the right on the backs of vans holding megaphones and going, the sky is falling, Julia Gillard is a witch, you know, that, that we had in the last government well, last Labor government, obviously Mm. there were nine years that felt to me that we didn't have a government so much as an absolutely debilitating disease. But certainly, these are all really positive changes and uh, an, a massive repair job on a society and an economy that events are revealing has been neglected for the past nine years.
0: It's interesting you say a big repair job because, of course, Sally McManus, the leader of the trade union movement, today gave a speech at the National Press Club, which you know I was fortunate enough to be able to watch. It's on ABC 24 iview. you can you can watch it there, uh, and of course one of the points that she made was that actually there's a lot of repair work to be done in the economy uh, and in our workplace laws as well. I mean it was a very it was a very interesting speech. It was very impassioned and was really a, an interesting lesson both in terms of what needs to be fixed right now, but also how we got to this point where. The system is so broken when it comes to the economy, where, where we do have record low levels of unemployment but also wage cuts. We have rising productivity but increasing numbers, record numbers of people working multiple jobs. We have huge profits but people struggling to pay their bills. It's a very, um, uh, it's almost dystopian in how uh, polarized it's become. And, and really, Sally McManus spelled out that this has happened because there's been a 30-year war on working people and particularly on unions in this country.
1: Well, certainly, I mean, there's been a, a, a an overt effort um, leading from the Howard government's election in uh, 1996 to smash unions, strip workers of rights, um Uh, push the dynamics of the workplace fairly and overwhelmingly in favour and not fair at all, but um, overwhelmingly in favour of employers and to create this profound class division in this country. And I think we need to speak about it in the terms of class division because the way that an economy should function is you should be able to make a decent living and support your family as a worker and make a decent living and support your family as a small business owner. Like these should be positions in society that give you equal purchase in terms of a, a comfortable standard of living. And of course, as we see more and more and more attacks on small on workers and we see the, the weight of um, economic favour from coalition governments swing behind not small business but big business again and again, we've seen an erosion in the customer base for small business um, because workers aren't earning as much money as they need to to be able to spend and we've seen a massive disproportional concentration of power amongst the most privileged cashed-up parts of society like we no one should have a job and be poor there should be no such thing as a working poor but we know there's a working poor in australia because we know that record numbers of people have been in multiple jobs and we know that the more jobs you have the less amount of money you are likely to earn
0: well exactly right and you know sally McManus has talked about this in the press club address that you know in the last time there was a summit of course we're big supporters of the Jobs and Skills Summit but the last time there was a summit the reaction to that was an article by Jared Henderson you know our uh Wrinkly friend from the Australian, uh, who went the on a man
1: obsessed with my bathing habits, yeah. and I'm not joking, uh, listeners. Jared Henderson once ran four or five consecutive columns in the Australian, uh, pondering about what I personally like to do in the bathtub, and yeah. I don't think I've my skin crawled so much that it got across the desert by itself.
0: <laughs> well, this is a man whose writings. 1983 uh, led to the formation of the HR Nichols Society in 1986. And, and Sally spells this out really clearly, that there were four men in Turak, um, John Stone, Barry Purvis, Ray Evans, and Peter Costello, who formed this society, the HR Nichols Society, specifically to try and get rid of the minimum wage, to get rid of collective bargaining, to bring in individual contracts.
1: And uh, what's Peter Costello, the former Liberal Party treasurer of Australia, doing now, Ben?
0: He's now the chair of the Future Fund. This is the largest Commonwealth investment fund in Australia. You know, this Is, is that
1: the only job he has? I'm quite sure he's got another job.
0: He's also the chair of Nine Fairfax, hmm. which – You know, again, this is a man who has thirty years of history and commitment to to this idea. Nick Minchin uh Nick Minchin and um oh the senator from Tasmania, former senator Abetz. Abetz talked about how the John Howard era was essentially the the same revolutionary fervor as Martin Luther nailing uh, nailing the the you know Protestant declarations to the to the cathedral door, uh, and Nick Minchin said that the vast majority, the great majority of Australian people, do not support what we're doing on industrial relations. They violently disagree, uh, but that the declaration by um, Luther that started the Thirty Year War meant that their equivalent would be a 30year program of work as well and and it has it, it has worked. Sally was asked that question by a journalist you know no Murdoch journalist turned up to see her at the press club. And and another Fever on
1: the pulse. What what? absolute news hounds. The leader of the Australian Trade Union movement gives an absolutely historical speech at at the National Press Club and the national broadsheet, she said, the Australian, don't even turn up.
0: Well, this is, and this was the point, have have the four men won. Sally responded beautifully and just said, Well, to some degree they have, but what does their victory mean? What does them winning look like? Well, it means falling wages, workers not getting their share of productivity, people not able to pay their bills. At the same time now, of course, we do have a Labor government and actually all of the lies of the last 30 years about wage price spirals and strikes, shutting down mum and dad businesses and union thugs, like all of that is being seen through. Like, as you said, small business people are going, hang on a minute, we're not being shut down by strikes. That's not happening here. We need people to have money. We've seen it in our small town. We've seen it right across the country.
1: Yeah, our small town had a boom during the days of JobSeeker, you know, during the days of the double doll uh, at the height of the pandemic when cash was just pumped into the economy into the places where it was needed the most to keep people alive. It kept small business alive. That's how an economy is supposed to work. I repeat, everyone should have the expectation that they will earn enough money from their business or as a worker to look after their family and to live a comfortable life.
0: And that was really the point that Sally raised, I think, very, very clearly, that what the union movement wants is to fix the problems that exist in our system that mean fewer and fewer people are able to collectively bargain, which means wages are being cut and cut and cut and fewer and fewer people are able to have a basic level of comfort even if they work full time, even if they work multiple jobs. that companies do have disproportionate power, that the independent umpire does not have a whistle anymore, cannot bring parties to the table and make them agree. She raised the issue of Sydney Rail. You know, the two parties can't even agree on what they've agreed on and the independent umpire has no power to kind of bring that to an end. Companies are using the legal system to drag out bargaining for months, in some cases years, to try and break workers' will. To, to continue on and to basically accept lower conditions. And, and one of the great challenges, I think, when we talk about we're going to reform the economy and we're going to change the industrial relations system and we're going to have multi-employer bargaining as an option and small business has said actually that will work for us if we can bargain properly and collectively because we don't have an army of lawyers like Woodside or we don't have AIG being able to, you know, do that for us. But if we can have a body like COSBOA, their peak body, negotiate with a body like the ACTU uh, and say, okay, all the fast food outlets in this area or this state or whatever the, whatever the makeup is, like they've done in California, Van, then there's real outcomes that can be driven. And the productivity that workers have been delivering can actually start to be shared properly. Of course, what we're hearing on the other side is the same old tropes, you know, wage price spiral, strikes. Peter Dutton didn't attend the summit because he refused to, and I quote, sit down with union thugs. It's it, it, They just want to continue the same old politics of division.
1: Well, I mean, it's not only the politics of division, but it's the, the politics of a neoliberal fantasy that's been exposed as bunk after 40 years of failed promises i mean the the liberal party are really in crisis at the moment and i don't think we can underestimate One, how dangerous that is, and I'll get to that in a moment, but two, why that's happened. Because we're looking at a situation where the majority of states have Labor governments, we have a federal Labor government, the New South Wales Liberal government of Dominic Perrottet is in terrible trouble, the Andrews state Labor government that weathered so much, you know, hoo-ha from crazies, you know, out to kill the Premier and the rest of it, during their coronavirus response and everything was a disaster and everybody's criticizing except they weren't. I mean mm. what's the the Labour primary is in its forties in Victoria, which for a third term government is pretty remarkable. The Liberals are polling what in Victoria? Twenty-eight. Twenty-eight percent. Twenty-eight. In in a Dovage's tendency, you know, two-party weighted environment, the best that the other party, uh, the other major party can do is 28%, is pretty terrifying Um, and it's got to do with the fact that the Liberals have really suffered Liberal drift. Like I wrote about this for The Guardian that the the Liberals in a a universal enfranchisement system where everybody votes, where we have what is known as compulsory voting but which you Mm -hmm. and I call a universal enfranchisement, it means that, if the the Liberal Party is held together as an alliance between actual small ill-liberals, pro-business small ill-liberals who are socially progressive but economically conservative and conservatives who are conservative economically and conservative socially, and if you drift too far to the conservative side, and this has happened three times with the dominant conservative party or the dominant centre-right party in Australian politics, whether it was the UAP or the Nationalist Party before that, and you lose your small little liberals, you are in real trouble. Like the Historically the party has collapsed. And the problem that they have is that, while, you know, the sort of small ill liberal tradition of the Liberal Party truly was based around things like civil liberties civil liberties, and a defence of the right to privacy and this sort of, you know, moderate social progressivism kind of thing, their full-on holus-bolus embrace of neoliberal economics, which has been dominant in the Liberal Party since the 1970s and Malcolm Fraser, um, where they walked away from economic protectionism and, you know, the the parts of the... the The National Party that was still the old agrarian socialists um, popping up in that coalition is always something, you know, worth having a bit of a giggle about. But neoliberalism was this sort of radical free market ideology that was about user pays everything, that was about a destruction of the state um, and outsourcing everything to business. It was about greed is good, trickle down economics, uh, like cut tax, destroy institutions, let business run everything and markets will make decisions about where they want to spend their money. I mean, we've talked about this a lot. And the promise of the neoliberals in the 70s was that, you know, it was, forgive me if you've heard this one before, everybody was going to take back control. Instead of having the nanny state tell you which hospital you had to go to and which school you had to go to, you would have choice and control in the marketplace. And that Paying less tax, you could determine where your extra money went, and of course, the result of this worldwide has been nothing short of an absolute disaster. You only have to look at the privatised railway system in Britain, where the same the same length of journey that would be like Sydney to Newcastle, like two hours, which in New South Wales costs what eleven bucks in in England can cost £100, it's like $200 to get from Sydney to Newcastle because of the way that they price gouge and it's all based on profiteering. You know, Britain, there's a, a really famous play uh, by David Hare, one of my favourite playwrights, called The Permanent Way, which is about the privatisation of British Rail and the absolute disaster that followed in its wake. And for anybody who's interested in sort of the, the, the cultural interpretation of neoliberal economics permanent way is just a devastating play because what happens is train accident after train accident after train accident um there's a, a character who from memory is called the woman the woman without a face a woman in a mask who loses her face in a, a train accident and we've seen this across the, i mean it's obviously not just there we have all this nonsense in new south wales with the ferries that don't fit under bridges and everything's outsourced and everything's imported from overseas and it's all about cost cutting and it wasn't efficient at all. Workers got screwed, workers got less money, conditions got driven down. It's almost impossible. There is no way you could support uh, a family, a household to a comparable standard of living to the rest of Australia with only one breadwinner on average wage. There's no way that that's a thing in this country anymore. You know, the... The problem has been that all the promises have trickled down. The trickle never came. And we know that. We all know that. But the Liberal Party is even their, you know, supposedly progressive wing is still absolutely bedded down in those economics. You know, it was funny, I was at a, an event the other night and somebody was saying, oh, Malcolm Turnbull was in the wrong party, you know, Malcolm Turnbull who represents the sort of legacy of small-l liberalism, you know, like the forsaken god uh, of the fallen moderates, you know, and people go, oh, yeah, well, he was really a Labor person. And I wrote about this when he became Prime Minister. He never was. He has been a member of the Liberal, or was a member of the Liberal Party from the 1960s. 70s and he didn't believe in minimum wage he believed in full you know radical free market ideology i'm going to what was his famous line when he became prime minister i'm going to run this country for the might of the market or he actually you know, freedom—the individual and the market. That's yeah, what he said. Freedom, individual
0: and the market. That's freedom, right. individual
1: and the market. Whereas I'm like, well, I'm way up on freedom, but I like, you know, the community and shared prosperity. That's the the take I would I would go on. But I am a socialist. What would one expect? But this is the thing. Like these economic policies are desperately unpopular, and the the liberals seem to think that. They can follow the model of conservative parties in other Western countries, which is, of course, quite topical given the election Mm. of a woman I would politely describe as fascist adjacent uh, in the new right-wing government of Italy, that the way that the Trumps and the Boris Johnsons and the Liz Trusses have have – You know, carried electoral victories in countries, by the way, that do not have universal enfranchisement, where voting can be suppressed. Um, They have carried votes on the basis of, you know, a, a new nationalism and a populism that's based around cultural issues that are supposedly more important to their voter bases than economic issues are. So you can be absolutely miserable about what neoliberalism has done to your community, but be whipped up into a fervor by the Republicans that the idea that somewhere, um, that, you know, somewhere in America a trans child may believe they have a right to liberty and prosperity and the right to participate fully and equally in society and that, you know, you can be whipped up into a fervour about Mexican immigrants you're crossing the border or God help you Venezuelans or Cubans fleeing repressive regimes and that this is enough to excuse the kind of neoliberal free-for-all that the likes of Trump really stand for. And it's not working. And in Australia, it absolutely does not work. They're losing both halves because the culture war stuff is not really biting and the neoliberalism stuff is desperately unpopular.
0: Well, this is the point, right? Sally was explicitly clear about this, that, you know, as much as Peter Dutton might, you know, trot out the old H.R. Nichols and Peter Costello lines about union thugs, the average union member now is a 36 year old woman who works as a nurse, who's a member of the country's biggest union, the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, um, and probably works in a public hospital. Like this, this is not. Um, conducive to that kind of rhetoric. You know, union members around the country are part of their communities. You know, our local Lawn Bowls Club president, um, I'm not sure if he still is, he was a couple of years ago, um, was a member of the CFMEU. Like, you know, and he runs the local Lawn Bowls Club. Like these are people who have a tendency to get involved in community. Sally talked about the union members who've been helping clean up the floods and, you know, who lend um, emergency aid and do all the things that- My
1: mum, the lifelong PSA, Dello, Dello, you know, from from when she was a public servant, who in her retirement volunteered as a ward granny to, you know, look after children, Uh, very, very sick children in the public hospital system who was, you know, part of the campaign to ban guns, who went to every, you you know, like um, Land Rights March and Palm Sunday and, you know, my very Like my left school at 15 working class mother whose sense of solidarity was encouraged through the trade union tradition and knew that she had a social role and a social importance by virtue of turning up, you know, that the cause of justice was represented by the most important organisations in her life, which were the organisations of the trade union movement.
0: And, you know, we always encourage people to join their union here and I think, Sally's thing, Sally's line uh, in her speech that trade union members um, stand up, turn up, and join up is absolutely true. I think your mum embodies that spirit. I know I know she's, very proud of you embodying that spirit too. Uh, and of course, if you're listening to this and you're not already a member of your union, go to Australianunions.org.au/slash wow. That's W-O-W. You can join online wherever you are in the country, whatever size workplace, whatever the workplace is. That link will take you to an Australian Union's webpage, it will guide you through the process to join. And we know people have joined through that link. We're very proud, actually, of the fact that people join. That
1: gives our lives meaning and purpose to think that, you know, that people are becoming part of that community because I want to dispel a mythology that union people, like it's a gene or something or or you've got to grow up in a union family to be a union person. I think what a lot of people don't, get is that the experience of unionism is a form of education in itself it's a social education when you see for that first time that you are not alone and Sally McManus talks about this in her book on fairness that her moment of clarity was going as a high school student to the public education demos that were taking place in Sydney against the state level government of Terry Metherall at the time and she went with her teachers and she felt part of something and of course the amazing thing is she talks about this incredible day where she was there and I was there too like Sally and I were at the same demo on the same day and I think I was 13 years old with my mum going this is what it feels like to be part of something and whoever you are whatever family you're from whatever political background you've inherited or fallen into like it's that experience of going actually I am not powerless and, I, and from there, of course, that public education demo led me into a life full of feminist activism and solidarity with LGBTQIA causes and, um, you know, going to every demonstration for greater justice that I could and being a really committed environmentalist and learning that the capacity and the potential for social mobilisation and social change. I know, like... Because you are also a committed environmentalist. You maybe don't get quite as weepy about the trees that I do, but your contributions to environmental activism in this in this country shouldn't be understated in the work that you've done with the trade union movement. And, but I, I know that you've had that experience of going to environmental forum after environmental forum and saying to people like, hey, man, like why aren't we like saving the planet immediately? And you're going... Are you a member of a trade union? How do you think change happens?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and look, I pre- I appreciate the shout out on that. There's lots of people who do a lot of really important work in that in that space to bring together what are actually very compatible, very aligned value sets, but that are often pitted against one another. By other interests, uh, by by the interests of private capital, private equity, whatever you want to call it, um, that that want to separate out environmentalists from workers, or coal mining communities from renewable energy, you know, and we'll talk in this episode about some huge news out of Queensland. Can I
1: just do a shout-out to our good comrades from Act on Climate Vic? So Act on Climate is a a campaign um, manifestation of Friends of the Earth in Victoria that campaigns for sustainable energy sources and um, investment in renewables and climate action and those guys get it and they front to union pickets they understand that solidarity with organized working people is is the environmental future is the future the industrial future like we are going in the same direction and their solidarity means everything like the fact that they are visible and they show up and they back in workers and their unions and fight for jobs they're such a great they're such a great campaign organisation. And if you're looking for um, somewhere to participate in environmental, direct environmental action, Act on Climate Vic are superb.
0: Well, look. Let's let's talk about the about the good news. We're gonna we're gonna inject the good news as a major story into the middle of the show, and we'll come we'll come back to uh, the federal ICAC story because which I think, is
1: also good news. I which mean, is also
0: good news, right? This is a good news episode. I hope this
1: doesn't destroy our news brand that we're actually quite <laughs> positive about Australia at the moment.
0: Yeah, there's lots of good stuff going on, and look, you know, hopefully. Uh, the Murdoch Press, you know, will at least report on the reporting of the National Press Club address because it was a very powerful speech. Uh, and look, what's happening in Queensland is phenomenal news, Van. Oh, it is such good news. <laughs> Anastasia Palaszczuk, Premier of Queensland, has unveiled a ten-year energy plan at the State of the State address that will end reliance on coal by twenty thirty-five. That that in itself, you would go. Well, that's huge news, and immediately brings up a thousand questions. You know, particularly what happens to the workers, how's that going to work, but it's actually a plan. Like it's a ten-year plan. And at the announcement, you know, you had the ETU Queensland. Um, uh, there's a beautiful photo of Ongi and Anastasia Palaszczuk and Stephen Miles, the Deputy Premier, and our friend Lance McCallum. Uh, I
1: love Lance McCallum. Mick Mick DeBrenny, Man, I think, we love all these people, but obviously, full disclosure: Lance McCallum, he's part. He's part of the pod.
0: <laughs> and Mick Debrenny, I think, is in the in that photo as well. Um, I think the AMWU is in that photo. Look, it's a. It shows what can be done when you bring the stakeholders together and you go, how are we going to tackle this issue? How are we going to resolve this problem? And what are the tensions within the problem that we're going to have to manage? And it's a phenomenal announcement. 70% renewable energy by 2032, 80% by 2035. In
1: Queensland where – you know, Matt Canavan keeps telling, you know, smears the coal paint on his face and pretends he's working class, you know, like, and, oh, well, you know, yeah, they'll never beat us in Queensland and the rest of it. Well, a bit of union leadership and, you know, and and, and working together, the actual kind of tripartite engagement you and I are always spooking because there's a lot of uh, investment that's going into renewables as well. There are opportunities for entrepreneurs in the renewable space to build you know to build things to sell products to be part of the new green economy in that state but it's been negotiated with the union movement and it is Absolutely amazing what the ETU have done up there. And Peter Ong, what a legend. Like the ETU um, Queensland NT, I've got to say, are my spiritual home. I think we all know that. And they had a, a secretary called Peter Simpson who unfortunately died two years ago. It was the anniversary of his death the other day who was an incredibly important person to me. And the ETU in Queensland absolutely get you know, the the power of solidarity and have fronted up and been visible and been active in every progressive cause you could imagine up there. They are so good. They are one of the reasons why we don't have nuclear power in this country, endangering communities, creating a toxic waste cycle and everything associated with that but their involvement in negotiating the the transition in Queensland is absolutely fantastic because they've delivered an energy plan the first of its kind in Australia the the, the amount of money being directed by the Queensland state government into this energy plan is 62 billion dollars, which is just amazing. But within that energy plan is an energy workers charter. And this is what the ETU have got the government to agree to. They've been involved in the development from the beginning to the end. It was signed as as part of this announcement Mm -hmm. about the energy plan. And it means that not a single Um, electrical trades worker will will lose their job in the transition. Their jobs are guaranteed. And Peter Ong was saying this, you know, all of the ETU members who work in coal-fired power stations, they know that the industry is changing. Like working-class people, here's a spoiler alert, are not stupid. People who work in coal communities understand that coal is on the way out. It's about what fairness looks like for workers who are in an industry in transition, who are in changing circumstances, and this energy workers charter which guarantees jobs, which means people do not have to be terrified of the future, who don't have to make a decision about personal financial household hell and and an external pro- prophesized environmental hell to come. They can actually be part of the solution because everybody wants to be part of the solution. And the fact that this is happening in Queensland is just it's phenomenal.
0: It, it really is amazing. And it also speaks, I think, to the power of state-owned assets as well, because, of course, Queensland still owns much of its own energy infrastructure. Thanks
1: to the ETU.
0: In, in no small part. And, of course, WA, we know, has a transition plan for Collie as well, in a similar sort of situation. But, you know, Queensland is really going that extra step, because we are talking about communities that, that have large reserves of coal. Fundamentally, we're talking about communities where you could you could theoretically go, well, we're going to be the last ones out. We're going to we're going to dig out every last lump of coal and then we'll move on from there. But that would be abandoning people. That would actually be abandoning those communities. And instead, what this does is this says, no, no, we're going to have Pumped hydro uh, just to the west of Gympie. That's going to be finished by 2030. We're going to, that's going to do two gigawatts of 24-hour electricity storage. We're going to have five gigawatts, the largest pumped hydro energy storage in the world, to be completed by 2032. You know, 25 gigawatts of new and existing renewable energy, the largest pumped hydro in the world. It's going to make Snowy Hydro look small. And, and it's transitioning the existing communities, giving them a future and making that investment. So it's not just the investment in the machinery and the transmission wires and the, and the infrastructure, but it's the investment in those communities, in those jobs, in training, in transitioning, and, and putting that money in ahead of time. You know, you and I have talked before and we've talked with others about the German model and the 30-year plan they had to do transition and how nobody lost their job and then the last coal worker retired or left the mine, you know, everybody kind of walked away happy. And, of course, we don't necessarily have 30 years now, but we haven't in this country had an energy plan for the last decade. There hasn't been a national energy plan for 22 years. Now there is a national energy plan, but to have this kind of transition on the cards... Is just phenomenal. It's a phenomenal step in the right direction. And yes, it's a lot of money, but we're talking about <laughs> human
1: survival on Earth.
0: Yeah, human survival <laughs> on Earth, future prosperity, making sure that we can continue to have high energy using uh, lifestyles. And, <laughs> you know, everything we do uses energy. So getting it to net zero, getting to zero emissions is actually pretty important. Uh, and this does it. This is a phenomenal announcement, hugely good news for workers, community, and and the fact that it, you know puts Matt Canavan back in his box in the same week where Dutton and Canavan have tried to push nuclear to the front of the queue in the Senate. Uh, you know, oh Matt Canavan tweeted, oh I've got nine senators who are prepared to back me, putting forward a, a you know a, a repeal on the ban of nuclear energy. Well, Matt. Take your nine senators and go and sit in the cafe and complain all you like about the fact that Queensland is making the transition and making it safely and making it with communities and with workers, because that's what's actually happening. You and your nine senators can go and, you know, sit in the courtyard and just, I don't know what they Let gonna-
1: me guess Pauline Henson, Malcolm Roberts, the um, Palmer United person from Victoria. Uh, who else? Alex Antic, Gerald Rennick. Matt I mean, Canavan, who have I forgotten? I it's think, the crazy caucus.
0: I think you've. I've think, got
1: nine senators, and it's like, and all of them are terrible human beings.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's that's. I mean, that's the great thing about what we're seeing in Queensland. Obviously, WA has a similar transition program for collie. You know, I was at a an event. A couple of Fridays ago, where Victoria is having this conversation like, what does it look like in Victoria? Now we're going to have wind.
1: Daniel Andrews put a meme out on um, my favorite kind of meme, a chart meme, a referenced chart meme um, on uh, Facebook the other day that. Um, Victoria, of course, has had a renewable energy target for a while, thanks in in no small part to organisations like Act on Climate Vic um, and our friends there uh, and an extraordinary um, climate action and environment minister in the form of Lily D'Ambrosio, who's truly one of the greats. Uh, Victoria has has met double its emissions target for this time. Like emissions are plummeting in Victoria. They've actually uh, the state emissions um, have declined by thirty percent since two thousand and five. So they're double on target for. Um, the renewable energy target that was set by the Andrews Labor government. Like, it's possible. And I know everybody gets freaked out about climate change because we're watching a tropical hurricane hit Canada, which is not normal. And obviously what's going, like terrible, terrible hurricanes in uh, Florida and all of these extreme weather events throughout the world. You know, it is terrifying. It's a terrifying time. But the capacity for doing the work is there and there are people who are willing to do it. And one group of people who are prepared to do it are, blow me down with a feather, the government of Queensland.
0: Yeah, look, it's, it's phenomenal. And, you know, we talk about making progress and it is hard you know, I had a meeting this morning with some people about, you know, some work we've been doing for feels like the two years that we've been doing it feels like the two years, but, you know, then we sat, sat back and went, oh, actually look at how far we've come on that issue. And and absolutely climate is one of those things, you know, where as a nation we have taken big steps forward. Another big 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 issue that we've taken a huge step forward on uh is of course the federal icac it felt like look at the joy
1: have you seen the joy have you seen my my joyful face
0: well i mean this is this is a phenomenal step in the right direction uh the the labor government's federal icac is NAC, the national anti-corruption commission um which makes sense uh The legislation has been introduced. Look, there's lots of discussion about this. It will be debated. There will be hearings uh, in the Senate. There will be lots of uh, demands for more clarity. Some of the key points I want to raise, what the Labor government is putting forward is a $262 million over four years National Anti-Corruption Commission. There will be a commissioner, three deputy commissioners, there'll be a chief executive officer. Uh, It will look into and investigate any serious or systemic conduct, corrupt conduct by Commonwealth ministers, parliamentarians and their staff, statutory office holders, staff of Commonwealth entities and companies, and contracted service providers. Also, any person that adversely affects the honest or impartial exercise of a public official's functions or duties. And whether criminal or non criminal, uh, and occurring before or after the commission's establishment. So that means retrospectively as well as prospectively. It will be, which is a huge deal because this is. It's one of the,
1: retrospective. This is that one of means the, all the dodgy garbage from the past is going to be exposed. We got a retrospective ICAC, and I'm so happy.
0: Peter Dutton's press conference on this.
1: Anybody is welcome to score and release that the I release the IP on that particular tune.
0: Peter Dutton's uh, media conference on uh, providing initial tacit support for the NAC uh, was was it a uh, classic of the genre? It was a classic of the genre. It was a man. Who knew he couldn't say no? Because one of the other things, and this is that this is where there is again a bit of to and forth, uh, back and forth, is that there will mostly be private hearings. There, there will be public hearings where it is uh, in the public interest, but they will conduct private hearings, and if it is in the public interest and exceptional circumstances justified doing so, public hearings. Now, that's been a big sticking point. Uh, for some people that the public hearings straight off the bat destroy reputations. And there are different models in different states. Obviously, the New South Wales ICAC is all public all the time. In other parts of the country, they're not always public, but they are sometimes public, and that seems to be the model nationally they've gone for. Peter Dutton was desperately at pains to say that the Liberals would not support always public all the time. Um, and he referenced somebody who took their own life um, in South Australia. I'm not familiar with that case. If that raises issues for you, please do contact Lifeline or Beyond Blue uh, or seek the appropriate assistance. Um, I, I was not familiar with that, but obviously that would be a terrible circumstance. However, there are independents who say, well, hang on a minute, public hearings do flush out a lot of extra detail um, and do make the public aware of a situation, even if it's not criminal, even if it's not corrupt, and it allows people to have a better informed opinion about the conduct of the officials. So there is some backwards and forwards in this, but Dutton was clearly boxed in. He has to agree, at least in principle, he he's going to have to support this um, the independents, some of the independents have already said they support it as is. They'd like to see some change. It will be overseen by a parliamentary committee, both from the lower house and the senate three from government, two from opposition, one from independents in both houses. Um, Helen Hines has been put forward from the lower house to be the independent. He's uh, obviously done quite a lot of work on, on federal ICAC or campaign on it for quite some time. But it's a huge step in the right direction, Van. And- oh,
1: it's great, and it's just—I don't know who else is having this uh, particular experience. Um, Mark Dreyfus QC, who's the Attorney General, I trust him. I, I trust him to propose legislation which is considered uh, that represents the popular will. Obviously, you know. Uh, uh, in, like anti-corruption commissions are insanely popular in this country. Um, we believe in them. We've seen their value. They are a really important mechanism to maintain institutional integrity in this country and that's a majority opinion by some margin. And the idea that that Dreyfus is drafting this legislation just fills me with confidence. And like I said, the experience I've been having recently, it's like, oh, there's a health announcement Ah, Mark Butler is the Minister for (laughs) Health. Oh, look, there's a Home Affairs announcement. Ah, Claire O'Neill has got this under control. Like it's just that, that relentless, oh, Chris Bowen, the Minister for Climate Action, and it's like everything is going to be all right. It's okay, everyone. Penny Wong is at the UN. Like, there's not going to be some kind of terrible disaster that we're all going to have to spend weeks reacting to. Like, it is that just sort of basic competency confidence. But Dreyfus is an exceptional lawyer, and this is a popularly supported position. The you know the majoritarian ideological spectrum of this country is absolutely behind it, and I just want to. I absolutely want to affirm the value of an anti-corruption commission in terms of what is the greatest threat to the Western culture and society at the moment, which is rising authoritarianism. Like Mm. I mentioned before, there is a new fascist adjacent Prime Minister of Italy, uh, Giorgia Maloney. It is literally terrifying. Who believes that George Soros, who just so happens... Coincidentally, I'm sure to be Jewish and uh, euphemistically um, is invoked uh, to pay lip sur- euphemistic lip service to very old conspiracy theories that are, can I just say, anti-Semitic in nature, believes John uh, George Soros is um, flying in uh, illegal immigrants in order to flood Europe and Great Replacement, you know, crazy far-right nonsense. Um, Obviously, we've seen the disaster of Brexit and uh, nationalist populism in the UK, whose economy is completely collapsing as we speak, Uh, the Trump stuff in the United States, you know, wild mobs taking on the capital. One of the reasons why the kind of disinformation propaganda that has whipped up mobs in those countries against positions that are absolutely... I mean, based on lies, Trump did lose the election. George Soros is not flying in illegal immigrants anywhere, and uh, Boris Johnson, like everything Boris Johnson said about the greatness of Brexit, was I mean, obviously a lie. But the reason why those disinformation narratives get purchased with people is because their trust in institutions is eroded by mm. corruption and dissembling and poor political behaviour, and you get people who are like, "What's the point in voting? Nothing makes a difference. They're all corrupt. You know, they're only in." It for themselves and that kind of horrible political cynicism which drives right. which drives people either out of the political process and they you know, in in um, non-universally enfranchised countries they stop voting or you have a situation where they don't trust any kind of institutional information so they just choose what to believe they go shopping for the the narrative that best suits their worldview whether it's true or not strong independent institutions safeguards against corruption it's a safeguard on the truth it's a safeguard on national integrity it's a safeguard around the institutions that we created to be safe, stable and prosperous and having a national mechanism to root out corruption no matter where it comes from. And Annie Albanese has been really clear about this, like everybody is subject to what happens in an independent anti-corruption commission you know it doesn't matter if they're wearing a blue t-shirt a red one a green one or a pink one it does not matter but the and there will be casualties in all kinds of contexts you know for for wrongdoing and misbehavior mm. and that's good Like that inspires, that's an institutional message. The existence of an anti-corruption commission creates a moral expectation of the behaviour of politicians and everybody who engages with them to be better, to do things by the book, to have a process, to be transparent. You know, institutions teach us how to be good. Human beings are flawed. This is what I always say about you know, particularly about the Australian Labor Party. Human beings are flawed. Political parties are made up of human beings who are flawed and therefore are also implicitly flawed. But the light on the hill is perfect. You know, the mission of, you know, wherever we can lend a hand and to be better and to be greater is made possible by institutional values and processes that safeguard us against our flaws. And I'm so excited about a federal ICAC. I was tweeting today about things Australia can do to avoid the proto-fascist madness that's going on in other Western countries, and we're, we're getting really close to sorting it out. We have universal enfranchisement. That's fantastic. That means that extremists can't prosper and people cannot
0: voters cannot be suppressed. And can I just say, Van, on that point, in Italy, they had the lowest turnout since the Second World War. Yep. So this Only
1: is- 64% of Italians voted.
0: Yeah, and and, and likewise, the UK has seen very low turnouts at their recent uh, elections when Boris Johnson got elected. This is this is a trend. Far right prosper in Sweden. They've elected a right wing government, and similarly, they had low turnouts. This is this is a this is a problem.
1: Yeah, because if you do not guarantee, if you do not oblige the state to service every single voter. Like, we have universal enfranchisement in Australia to make sure no one can deny you your vote. You can write all the candidates are swamp monsters on your paper if you want to. Like, you have the right to do that. But, but the state is obliged to who do everything to ensure that you can write all of the candidates as swamp monsters. Like that is a sacred principle and it spares us ex- the kind of polarised extremist nonsense that goes on in other countries. The other things that we need, strong trade unions. If you're worried about fascism, and let me tell you, Having written QAnon and on, on, I'm worried about fascism all the time. I've been worried about fascism my entire life, you know. Like I am proudly anti-fascist. I would wear it on a T-shirt. I don't care what Tucker Carlson says. And, I mean, I do because he represents the things that I oppose. But you know what I mean. I do not accept his character judgment of people like me. And absolutely strong trade unions are ever the bulwark against fascism. Trade unions are the protection of democracy. They are the protection of principles of equality and inclusion. They are a living reminder that hierarchy and authoritarianism is not normal and it is not the natural state of being. And every time authoritarian governments try to seize power, they crack down on trade unions every single time. One of the best things you can do to fight fascism is to join join a trade union. The other thing we need in this country, obviously, a federal anti-corruption committee, the NAC, the National Anti-Corruption Commission, that is one of the best things we can do to fight fascism because it doesn't let the disinformation prosper because it holds everybody to account equally. It is a check on power and excess and that is absolutely extraordinary. And we need strong, independent, publicly funded institutions in the education system, obviously in our courts, in our judiciary, and absolutely in terms of SBS and the ABC. We have to guarantee that institutions that are more capable of being flawless than human beings are, are properly resourced and protected and defended at all costs. So we are doing the right things. We are approaching like, you know, authoritarian proof nirvana in this country, but we can only do that if we remain committed to that mission.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I had cause to tweet the other day uh, and look, It is about holding those institutions to account as well. Um,
1: That's why uh, we have an anti-corruption commission. Look at this. It's
0: all win, 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 win. And, of course, independent media like our podcast, like even The Guardian, for example, that do approach these things not from a position of how do we maximize profit? Because we've seen-
1: Or whip for- up a fascist mob. Like we're not yeah. here to whip up fascist mobs and there are podcasts and I'm sure we could name them that do exist to uh, whip up fascist mobs. Yeah, That's absolutely. That's Bannon. Bonjour. <laughs> we beat you in Australia the other day. Hi.
0: <laughs> but of course, so that leads me very nicely into the fact that this podcast is continuing to reach so many- Tens of thousands of Australians every week. It's it's a phenomenal um, privilege to be able to talk with you, Van, and to talk with everyone who listens. We, of course are doing a week on Wednesday live show at the Melbourne Fringe uh, with our friend Peter Lewis who's going to have some, uh, you I'm know, calling
1: it digital whiz-bangery.
0: Digital whiz-bangery for audience participation. So if you get your tickets and you come along. But, like,
1: not in a weird way, not like, come up on stage, Michelle. Have oh, you no, ever no, put no, an no. orange on your head? We're not doing that.
0: no. Audience participation from the comfort of your seat.
1: Yeah, (laughs) digital whiz-bangery.
0: That's right. Uh, And, of course, the people who support the show by liking, sharing, commenting, leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts, but also the people who do chip in to help us build the audience because it is a collective effort. You know, we do put – uh, we do put resources into expanding our audience, to getting into in front of more people's eyes, into more people's ears, so that more people can interact with us. And every week there are more and more interactions. And it's because people are prepared to be part of that collective effort. Not everyone can make a financial contribution and that's why the podcast will always be free to listen to and download. But for those who do make a contribution, we are really grateful and we congratulate you on being part of of helping this message get out to more people. And so we acknowledge our cadre supporters who contribute $20 a month and our Extend the Reach supporters who contribute $10 a month uh, by name every episode. And of course, we acknowledge our a week supporters and our one-off contributors who give what they can when they can. We really appreciate that as well. But Van, do you have the list of cadre supporters in front of you?
1: Oh, you know, like I, um, I, I was looking it up and I got some hate mail from some fascists, which is always <laughs> lovely. And a big shout out to the fascists who threatened my life. I'm like friends. I've been on the internet for a long time. I've had every threat you could possibly imagine. I get hate mail every day. Stop being pussies. If you want to kill me, just kill me. Okay, so uh, our list of supporters. This is the exciting part. Can you tell I'm just done with fascist threats? (laughs) I
0: can tell, yeah. Uh, do
1: Do you know what really gets to me about fascist threats? The spelling. (laughs) There's always a spelling mistake. It's absolutely extraordinary. But, you know, I guess um, translation uh, engines do suffer from uh, the original Russian. Okay. So our cadre supporters, are you ready? Yep. People sometimes time in this. I encourage that. (laughs) Karina Barley, at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, someone Stephen, Aitken, Trish, Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona, at Evergreen, Vise. Uh, Giota at Carney, Kristin Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pasco, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson. No Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter. Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Carly Phillips, Adley Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles. Uh, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash, 20, Billy 3, McCabe, Karen, Will Robinson, Nerissa Simon. Catagal, Lauren Ash Banjo. Banjo, Matthew Hadley, Adna Rungaman, John and Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, Ruby and Blue Lou. And then our Extend the Reach supporters are Stuart Mum, Marky Mark. Marky Mark is extending the reach. Oh, my God. Um, I'm sharing my calvins with him. Okay, at Vic Imbit, Vic Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nichus, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur, Pauline Bate, Helen, Daniel at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan at Ange Fennel. I Anna Uren at Ross Kenner 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Dinning, JDA A. Not on Twitter, Karen, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Vicky Hannah at K. Not, love your work, love yours too, at Didoms, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, hello, uh, Richard Grever, someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannah, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham, Oxley, Beck, Cody, Tracy, Lucas Sandy Honing, at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, and Andrew, Ivor Spillit, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip, Patterson, Lizard, at Twizzle, Bunker Bash, Katie Ward, at the real Neville, Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart at not Sandy B, and at, at Renee McGree. and that's that's a lot. We got more. Hello, yeah, we got
0: more. We got more supporters this Welcome week. To the happy
1: Family. We are really excited about doing the week on Wednesday live in Melbourne. Um, I would suggest if you're thinking about coming, get your tickets now because it's still two weeks to go. And we've already sold more than half of them.
0: Yeah, it's-
1: so the show is going to be very popular, and we would hate to have any friends turned away at the door. Um, and Melbourne Fringe are very strict about that because it is, and to their credit, super accessible um, and very militant about maintaining accessibility and not doing anything that compromises accessibility or OH&S principles, which is fantastic. We support, but get your ticket so you can definitely come and of course if this show goes well you may see us on the road a lot more and we are very excited about that and i'm going to wear a super special outfit i've already picked it
0: that is the week on wednesday for this week it has been a huge week in australian politics Despite the four-day weekend in Victoria or five-day or four-day weekend in WA or three-day weekend or whatever it's been, wherever you are, wherever you are, however you are. And the
1: incoherent sobbing of swan supporters like myself and my mother.
0: And the triumphant gloating of my mother. Hopefully the rest of your week will be great. Don't as long as our give, family always wins. Don't forget to tune into The Weekend Wrap where I will give you a brief rundown in 20 minutes or less of the news that happens between now and then. And until then, love you, Vanny.
1: I love you too. I miss you.
0: I miss you too.
1: Bye. Bye.